Book the Second, Chapter Twelve: The Fellow of Delicacy. Mr. Stryver, having made up his mind to that magnanimous bestowal of good fortune on the doctor's daughter, resolved to make her happiness known to her before he left town for the long vacation. After some mental debating of the point, he came to the conclusion that it would be as well to get all the preliminaries done with, and they could then arrange at their leisure whether he should give her his hand a week or two before Michaelmas term or in the little Christmas vacation between it and Hillary. As to the strength of his case, he had not a doubt about it, but clearly saw his way to the verdict. Argued with the jury on substantial worldly grounds, the only grounds ever worth taking into account, it was a plain case and had not a weak spot in it. He called himself for the plaintiff, and there was no getting over his evidence. The counsel for the defendant threw up his brief, and the jury did not even turn to consider. After trying it, Striver, C.J., was satisfied that no plainer case could be. Accordingly, Mr. Stryver inaugurated the long vacation with a formal proposal to take Miss Manette to Vauxhall Gardens, that failing to Ranley, that unaccountably failing, too, it behoved him to present himself in Soho and there declare his noble mind. Towards Soho, therefore, Mr. Stryver shouldered his way from the temple while the bloom of long vacation's infancy was still upon it. Anybody who had seen him projecting himself into Soho while he was yet on St. Dunstan's side of Temple Bar, bursting in his full-blown way along the pavement to the jostlement of all weaker people, might have seen how safe and strong he was. His way taking him past Telson's, and he both banking at Telson's and knowing Mr. Lorry as the intimate friend of the Manettes, it entered Mr. Stryver's mind to enter the bank and reveal to Mr. Lorry the brightness of the Soho horizon. So he pushed open the door with the weak rattle in its throat, stumbled down the two steps, got past the two ancient cashiers and shouldered himself into the musty back closet where Mr. Lorry sat at great books ruled for figures, with perpendicular iron bars to his window, as if that were ruled for figures too, and everything under the clouds were a sum. Hello, said Mr. Stryver. How do you do? I hope you are well. It was Stryver's grand peculiarity that he always seemed too big for any place or space. He was so much too big for Telson's that old clerks in distant corners looked up with looks of remonstrance as though he squeezed them against the wall. The house itself, magnificently reading the paper quite in the far-off perspective, lowered displeased, as if the striver head had been butted into its responsible waistcoat. The discreet Mr. Lorry said, in a sample tone of the voice he would recommend under the circumstances, How do you do, Mr. Stryver? How do you do, sir? And shook hands. 
There was a peculiarity in his manner of shaking hands, always to be seen in any clerk at Telson's who shook hands with a customer when the house pervaded the air. He shook in a self-abnegating way, as one who shook for Telson and company. "'Can I do anything for you, Mr. Striver?' asked Mr. Lorry in his business character. "'Why, no, thank you. This is a private visit to yourself, Mr. Lorry. I have come for a private word.' "'Oh, indeed,' said Mr. Lorry, bending down his ear while his eye strayed to the house afar off. I am going, said Mr. Stryver, leaning his arms confidentially on the desk, whereupon, although it was a large double one, there appeared to be not half desk enough for him. I am going to make an offer of myself in marriage to your agreeable little friend, Miss Manette, Mr. Lorry. Oh, dear me, cried Mr. Lorry, rubbing his chin and looking at his visitor dubiously. Oh, dear me, sir, repeated Stryver, drawing back. Oh, dear you, sir, what may your meaning be, Mr. Lorry? My meaning, answered the man of business, is, of course, friendly and appreciative, and that it does you the greatest credit, and, in short, my meaning is everything you could desire. But really, you know, Mr. Stryver... Mr. Lorry paused and shook his head at him in the oddest manner, as if he were compelled against his will to add internally, You know, there really is so much, too much of you. Well, said Stryver, slapping the desk with his contentious hand, opening his eyes wider and taking a long breath, If I understand you, Mr. Lorry, I'll be hanged. Mr. Lorry adjusted his little wig at both ears as a means toward that end and bit the feather of a pen. Damn it all, sir, said Stryver, staring at him. Am I not eligible? Oh, dear, yes. Oh, yes, oh, yes, you're eligible, said Mr. Lorry. If you say eligible, you are eligible. Am I not prosperous? asked Stryver. Oh, if you come to prosperous... You are prosperous, said Mr. Lorry, and advancing. If you come to advancing, you know, said Mr. Lorry, delighted to be able to make another admission. Nobody can doubt that. Then what on earth is your meaning, Mr. Lorry? demanded Stryver, perceptibly crestfallen. Well, I... Were you going there now? asked Mr. Lorry. Straight, said Stryver with a plump of his fist on the desk. Then I think I wouldn't if I was you. Why, said Stryver. Now, I'll put you in a corner, forensically shaking a forefinger at him. You are a man of business and bound to have a reason. State your reason. Why wouldn't you go? Because, said Mr. Lorry, I wouldn't go on such an object without having some cause to believe that I should succeed. Damn me, cried Stryver, but this beats everything. Mr. Lorry glanced at the distant house and glanced at the angry Stryver. Here's a man of business, a man of years, a man of experience in a bank, said Stryver. 
And having summed up three leading reasons for complete success, he says there's no reason at all, says it with his head on. Mr. Stryver remarked upon the peculiarity as if it would have been infinitely less remarkable if he had said it with his head off. When I speak of success, I speak of success with the young lady. And when I speak of causes and reasons to make success probable, I speak of causes and reasons that will tell us such with the young lady. The young lady, my good sir, said Mr. Lorry, mildly tapping the striver arm. The young lady. The young lady goes before all. Then you mean to tell me, Mr. Lorry, said Stryver, squaring his elbows, that it is your deliberate opinion that the young lady at present in question is a mincing fool? Not exactly so. I mean to tell you, Mr. Stryver, said Mr. Lorry, reddening, that I will hear no disrespectful word of that young lady from any lips, and that if I knew any man, which I hope I do not, whose taste was so coarse and whose temper was so overbearing that he could not restrain himself from speaking disrespectfully of that young lady at this desk, not even Telson should prevent my giving him a piece of my mind." The necessity of being angry in a suppressed tone had put Mr. Stryver's blood vessels into a dangerous state when it was his turn to be angry. Mr. Lorry's veins, methodical as their courses could usually be, were in no better state now it was his turn. That is what I mean to tell you, sir, said Mr. Lorry. Pray let there be no mistake about it. Mr. Stryver sucked the end of a ruler for a little while and then stood hitting a tune out of his teeth with it, which probably gave him the toothache. He broke the awkward silence by saying, This is something new to me, Mr. Lorry. You deliberately advise me not to go up to Soho and offer myself, myself, Stryver of the King's Bench Bar. Do you ask me for my advice, Mr. Stryver? Yes, I do. Very good. Then I give it, and you have repeated it correctly. And all I can say of it is, laughed Stryver with a vexed laugh, that this beats everything, past, present, and to come. Now understand me, pursued Mr. Lorry. As a man of business, I am not justified in saying anything about this manner, for, as a man of business, I know nothing of it. But as an old fellow, who has carried Miss Minette in his arms, who is the trusted friend of Miss Minette and of her father, too, and who has a great affection for them both, I have spoken. The confidence is not of my seeking. Recollect. Now, you think I may not be right? Not I, said Stryver, whistling. I can't undertake to find third parties in common sense. I can only find it for myself. I suppose sense in certain quarters. You suppose mincing bread and butter nonsense. It's new to me, but you are right, I dare say. What I suppose, Mr. Stryver, I claim to characterize for myself, and understand me, sir, 
said Mr. Lorry, quickly flushing again. I will not, not even at Telson's, have it characterized for me by any gentleman breathing. There, I beg your pardon, said Stryver. Granted. Thank you. Well, Mr. Stryver, I was about to say, it might be painful to you to find yourself mistaken. It might be painful to Dr. Manette to have the task of being explicit with you. It might be very painful to Miss Manette to have the task of being explicit with you. You know the terms upon which I have the honor and happiness to stand with the family. If you please, committing you in no way, representing you in no way, I will undertake to correct my advice by the exercise of a little new observation and judgment expressly brought to bear upon it. If you should then be dissatisfied with it, you can but test its soundness for yourself. If, on the other hand, you should be satisfied with it, and it should be what it now is, it may spare all sides what is best spared. What do you say? How long would you keep me in town? Oh, it's only a question of a few hours. I could go to Soho in the evening and come to your chambers afterwards. Then I say yes, said Stryver. I won't go up there now. I'm not so hot upon it as that comes to. I say yes, and I shall expect you to look in tonight. Good morning. Then Mr. Stryver turned and burst out of the bank, causing such a concussion of air on his passage through that to stand up against it, bowing behind the two counters, required the utmost remaining strength of the two ancient clerks. Those venerable and feeble persons were always seen by the public in the act of bowing and were popularly believed, when they had bowed a customer out, still to keep on bowing in the empty office until they bowed another customer in. The barrister was keen enough to divine that the banker would not have gone so far in his expression of opinion on any less solid ground than moral certainty. Unprepared as he was for the large pill he had to swallow, he got it down. And now said Mr. Stryver, shaking his forensic forefinger at the temple in general when it was down, my way out of this is to put you all in the wrong. It was a bit of the art of an old Bailey tactician in which he found great relief. You shall not put me in the wrong, young lady, said Mr. Stryver. I'll do that for you. Accordingly, when Mr. Lorry called that night as late as ten o'clock, Mr. Stryver, among a quantity of books and papers littered out for the purpose, seemed to have nothing less on his mind than the subject of the morning. He even showed surprise when he saw Mr. Lorry and was altogether in an absent and preoccupied state. Well, said that good-natured emissary, after a full half-hour of bootless attempts to bring him round to the question, I have been to Soho. To Soho, repeated Mr. Stryver coldly. Oh, to be sure, what am I thinking of? And I have no doubt, said Mr. Lorry, that I was right in the conversation we had. My opinion is confirmed, and I reiterate my advice. I assure you, 
returned Mr. Stryver in the friendliest way, that I am sorry for it on your account and sorry for it on the poor father's account. I know this must always be a sore subject with the family. Let us say no more about it. I don't understand you, said Mr. Lorry. I dare say not, rejoined Stryver, nodding his head in a smoothing and final way. No matter, no matter. But it does matter, Mr. Lorry urged. No, it doesn't. I assure you it doesn't. Having supposed that there was sense where there is no sense, and a laudable ambition where there is not a laudable ambition, I am well out of my mistake and no harm is done. Young women have committed similar follies often before, and have repented them in poverty and obscurity often before. In an unselfish aspect, I am sorry the thing is dropped, because it would have been a bad thing for me in a worldly point of view. In a selfish aspect, I am glad that the thing is dropped, because it would have been a bad thing for me in a worldly point of view. It is hardly necessary to say that I could have gained nothing by it. There is no harm at all done. I have not proposed to the young lady, and between ourselves, I am by no means certain, on reflection, that I ever should have committed myself to that extent. Mr. Lorry, you cannot control the mincing vanities and giddinesses of empty-headed girls. You must not expect to do it, or you will always be disappointed. Now, pray say no more about it. I tell you, I regret it on account of others, but I am satisfied on my own account, and I am really very much obliged to you for allowing me to sound you and for giving me your advice. You know the young lady better than I do. You were right. It never would have done. Mr. Lorry was so taken aback that he looked quite stupidly at Mr. Stryver, shouldering him towards the door with an appearance of showering generosity, forbearance, and goodwill on his erring head. Make the best of it, my dear sir, said Stryver. Say no more about it. Thank you again for allowing me to sound you. Good night. Mr. Lorry was out in the night before he knew where he was. Mr. Stryver was lying back on his sofa, winking at his ceiling. Book the Second Chapter Thirteen The Fellow of No Delicacy If Sidney Carton ever shone anywhere, he certainly never shone in the house of Dr. Manette. He had been there often during a whole year, and had always been the same moody and morose lounger there. When he cared to talk, he talked well. But the cloud of caring for nothing, which overshadowed him with such a fatal darkness, was very rarely pierced by the light within him. And yet he did care something for the streets that environed that house, and for the senseless stones that made their pavements. Many a night he vaguely and unhappily wandered there, when wine had brought no transitory gladness to him. Many a dreary daybreak revealed his solitary figure lingering there, and still lingering there when the first beams of the sun brought into strong relief, removed beauties of architecture, inspires of churches and lofty buildings, 
as perhaps the quiet time brought some sense of better things, else forgotten and unattainable, into his mind. Of late, the neglected bed in the temple court had known him more scantily than ever, and often, when he had thrown himself upon it no longer than a few minutes, he had got up again and haunted that neighborhood. On a day in August, when Mr. Stryver, after notifying to his jackal that he had thought better of that marrying matter, had carried his delicacy into Devonshire, and when the sight and scent of flowers in the city streets had some waifs of goodness in them for the worst, of health for the sickliest, and of youth for the oldest, Sidney's feet still trod those stones. From being irresolute and purposeless, his feet became animated by an intention, and in the working out of that intention they took him to the doctor's door. He was shown upstairs and found Lucy at her work, alone. She had never been quite at her ease with him and received him with some little embarrassment as he seated himself near her table. But looking up at his face in the interchange of the first few commonplaces, she observed a change in it. I fear you are not well, Mr. Carton. No, but the life I lead, Miss Manette, is not conducive to health. What is to be expected of or by such profligates? Is it not, forgive me, I've begun the question on my lips, a pity to live no better life? God knows it is a shame. Then why not change it? Looking gently at him again, she was surprised and saddened to see that there were tears in his eyes. There were tears in his voice, too, as he answered. It is too late for that. I shall never be better than I am. I shall sink lower and be worse. He leaned an elbow on her table and covered his eyes with his hand. The table trembled in the silence that followed. She had never seen him softened and was much distressed. He knew her to be so without looking at her, and said, Pray forgive me, Miss Manette. I break down before the knowledge of what I want to say to you. Will you hear me? If it will do you any good, Mr. Carton, if it would make you happier, it would make me very glad. God bless you for your sweet compassion. He unshaded his face after a little while and spoke steadily. Don't be afraid to hear me. Don't shrink from anything I say. I am like one who died young. All my life might have been. No, Mr. Carton, I am sure that the best part of it might still be. I am sure that you might be much, much worthier of yourself. Say of you, Miss Manette, and although I know better, although in the mystery of my own wretched heart I know better, I shall never forget it. She was pale and trembling. He came to her relief with a fixed despair of himself which made the interview unlike any other that could have been holden. If it had been possible, Miss Manette, that you could have returned the love of the man you see before yourself, flung away, wasted, drunken, poor creature of misuse as you know him to be, he would have been conscious this day and hour in spite of his happiness that he would bring you to misery.
bring you to sorrow and repentance, blight you, disgrace you, pull you down with him. I know very well that you can have no tenderness for me. I ask for none. I am even thankful that it cannot be. Without it, can I not save you, Mr. Carton? Can I not recall you, forgive me again, to a better course? Can I in no way repay your confidence? I know this is a confidence, she modestly said after a little hesitation and in earnest tears. I know you would say this to no one else. Can I turn it to no good account for yourself, Mr. Carton? He shook his head. To none. No, Miss Manette, to none. If you will hear me through a little more, all you can ever do for me is done. I wish you to know that you have been the last dream of my soul. In my degradation, I have not been so degraded but that the sight of you with your father and of this home made such a home by you has stirred old shadows that I thought had died out of me. Since I knew you, I have been troubled by a remorse that I thought would never reproach me again, and have heard whispers from old voices impelling me upward that I thought were silent forever. I have had unformed ideas of striving afresh, beginning anew, shaking off sloth and sensuality and fighting out the abandoned fight. A dream, all a dream that ends in nothing and leaves the sleeper where he lay down. But I wish you to know that you inspired it. Will nothing of it remain? Oh, Mr. Carton, think again, try again. No, Miss Manette, all through it I have known myself to be quite undeserving. And yet I have had the weakness, and have still the weakness, to wish you to know with what a sudden mastery you kindled me, heap of ashes that I am, into fire. A fire, however, inseparable in its nature from myself, quickening nothing lighting nothing, doing no service, idly burning away. Since it is my misfortune, Mr. Carton, to have made you more unhappy than you were before you knew me, don't say that, Miss Manette, for you would have reclaimed me if anything could. You will not be the cause of my becoming worse. Since the state of your mind that you describe is, at all events, attributable to some influence of mine— this is what I mean, if I can make it plain. Can I use no influence to serve you? Have I no power for good with you at all? The utmost good that I am capable of now, Miss Manette, I have come here to realize. Let me carry through the rest of my misdirected life the remembrance that I opened my heart to you last of all the world and that there was something left in me at this time which you could deplore and pity, which I entreated you to believe again and again most fervently with all my heart was capable of better things, Mr. Carton. Entreat me to believe it no more, Miss Manette. I have proved myself, and I know better. I distress you. I draw fast to an end. Will you let me believe when I recall this day that the last confidence of my life was reposed in your pure and innocent breast, and that it lies there alone and will be shared by no one? If that will be a consolation to you, yes, 
not even by the dearest one ever to be known to you. Mr. Carton, she answered after an agitated pause, the secret is yours, not mine, and I promise to respect it. Thank you, and again, God bless you. He put her hand to his lips and moved towards the door. Be under no apprehension, Miss Manette, of my ever resuming this conversation by so much as a passing word. I will never refer to it again. If I were dead, that could not be surer than it is henceforth. In the hour of my death, I shall hold sacred the one good remembrance, and shall thank and bless you for it, that my last avowal of myself was made to you, and that my name and faults and miseries were gently carried in your heart. May it otherwise be light and happy. He was so unlike what he had ever shown himself to be, and it was so sad to think how much he had thrown away and how much he every day kept down and perverted, that Lucy Manette wept mournfully for him as he stood looking back at her. Be comforted, he said. I am not worth such feeling, Miss Manette. An hour or two hence, and the low companions and low habits that I scorn but yield to, will render me less worth such tears as those than any wretch who creeps along the streets. Be comforted. But within myself I shall always be towards you what I am now, though outwardly I shall be what you have heretofore seen me. The last supplication but one I make to you is that you will believe this of me. I will, Mr. Carton. My last supplication of all is this, and with it I will relieve you of a visitor with whom I well know you have nothing in unison, and between whom and you there is an impassable space. It is useless to say it, I know, but it rises out of my soul. For you, and for any dear to you, I would do anything. If my career were of that better kind that there was any opportunity or capacity of sacrifice in it, I would embrace any sacrifice for you and for those dear to you. Try to hold me in your mind at some quiet times as ardent and sincere in this one thing. The time will come. The time will not be long in coming when new ties will be formed about you, ties that will bind you yet more tenderly and strongly to the home you so adorn, the dearest ties that will ever grace and gladden you. Oh, Miss Manette, when the little picture of a happy father's face looks up in yours, when you see your own bright beauty springing up anew at your feet, Think now and then that there is a man who would give his life to keep a life you love beside you. He said farewell, and alas, God bless you, and left her.